Wow. This is a woman who had the courage to hear her calling and move toward it. As she says in the interview, callings can change. And in her case, my guest Joan Borisenko continued to change and evolve with each one of her callings. From her own healing journey at age 10, to her strong and unwavering connection to her spiritual self, to the teaching and healing she's provided for so many, all was guided by a force that was larger than her. As she said it, it's an energy that flows through her. This is a beautiful conversation that left me profoundly inspired, and I hope it does the same for you. Enjoy. Please be aware that this episode mentions experiences with OCD and suicide and may not be suitable for all listeners. If you or someone you know is suicidal, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255 or message the crisis text line at 741-741. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. Joan, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be with you here, Sharon, and great to be with all the listeners. I feel you out there. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I feel. I've never put words to it. Well, Joan, let's start, since this is the Hoffman Podcast, and many of the listeners tend to be graduates or people who are interested in the Hoffman process. Let's start with the process. You've taken the process uh, several decades ago. Around when did you take the process? Oh, somewhere around 1990. So my goodness, that was almost 35 years ago. Is is that right? I think it might be. I'm not going to try to do math right now, but you're probably right. So it's been a while. So I'm curious, given that it's been a while, are you able to still connect to how it impacted your life and if it still shows up in your life today? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, I have to say that I took the process at a time in my life that I had been a meditator for a very long time. And I had studied, you know, quite a bit of Advaita Vedanta in terms of Hinduism, some Buddhism. I'd done a lot of emotional, shall we say, learning to witness and tame my emotions. So at the time that I took it in 1990, there was was so much awakening happening at once, so many good things that it's hard to pinpoint how much of my growth came from the process, how much came from other sources that came together. But I can say 
for sure. It helped the entire family. And uh, for, for example, my son, who was just 20 at the time, took it about two years before I did. And so did my husband, uh, who I affectionately call my husband, because <laughs> we got divorced a couple of years after the process because I did become clear during the process that uh, he and I had brought each other along for almost 20 years. And we had grown together, and it was time now for us to grow apart. So it was largely due to the process that the whole family system was healthy enough and steeped enough in presence and our connection to our own families of origin that it made it much easier to actually get divorced a couple of years after the process. So maybe that's a little weird, like I credit the Hoffman process with helping me get divorced really from my best self. I think both of us were able to make it through some of the emotional parts of the divorce because we had the tools and we knew the quadrinity and that was very helpful. Well, I, I like that you said it was a couple years later. You know, we often, as teachers, ask students, hey, don't make big life decisions for a little bit. Let this integrate. And then after it integrates, you can show up with your whole self, like you said, with your whole quadrinity and start to examine and ask some of the hard questions. So that takes time, it takes time to integrate. It does. So it was great. You know, I think when couples take the process and we took it a couple of years apart from each other, that kind of common language and common experience permeates the relationship in a good way so that you're starting from an enriched space when you're trying to process relational issues. Yeah, and, and that's not always easy. It, it's oftentimes, it's very charged, it's very scary, and imagining that you start from this, like you say, enriched space allows it to be the best case scenario for something that is otherwise difficult. Well, exactly. So it's good, and I'm happy to say that we're friends <laughs> and have been for all of the years, which has now been almost 30 years since we were divorced. Well, I can imagine among the people who go to the process, have been to the process, or are listening to this podcast, you're not alone in having that be one of the questions you're exploring. And so to hear that outcome, that you were able to touch into some of the truths that needed to be looked at. And the two of you were able to do that and navigate it so gracefully that you're still friends 30 years later. That's, that's beautiful. It is. It really is. And so I, I'm going to switch gears a tiny bit. You have been a teacher. Were you already a teacher at that point when you were? I was. You know, I've been teaching meditation and mind-body skills since the mid-1970s. In the early 1980s, I had founded a mind-body clinic at one of the Harvard Medical School teaching hospitals with Herbert Benson, who was really the first person 
to introduce meditation into medicine. And then my friend John Kabat-Zinn launched a mindfulness-based mind-body clinic. Uh, about a year before, Benson and I launched a clinic based on similar kinds of principles, and it was wonderful. John was so helpful to us. And as I said, there was it was a time of great growth in the, you know, starting in the 70s and through the 80s and 90s. So I was steeped in that. I'm a scientist and also a clinical psychologist. So I was working with people in a clinical setting. We were running eight-week programs for people with cancer. And then in 1982, the AIDS epidemic in Boston began. And in the beginning, we hadn't even identified the virus. We didn't even know why. We just knew that there was a great deal of sickness and death in the gay community. And so I was teaching and working with people who were very ill and people who were dying for the whole decade before I took the Hoffman process. So <laughs> the Hoffman process was wonderful and it dropped into, you know, such a, a rich pond of experience that was already there for me. Beautifully said. What I'm struck by is two things. One is that even though you were already steeped in it and were in these cutting edge spaces with people who are pioneers in this space, you still were also a student. So you still came to the process. You still continued to learn as you became a teacher. And I think that's so profoundly important for anybody who's in a space of teaching anything to continue to be a student. Oh, it really is because... One of the things I can attest to as a teacher is that it's a particular space that you get in, a particular kind of energy that you have to hold, and it's a very different energy to be able to simply let go, receive, learn, and not need to be in charge of things. And I have found that being a student recharges me. It's also one of my character strengths. I've been very, very interested in the still emergent field of positive psychology and the various character strengths that each of us has as individuals. And one of my signature character strengths is love of learning. And I do think that it helps me teach. If I also learn, it's exciting, it's new, and in a way, it's, it's really restful and nurturing to be a learner. Yeah, I, I see something in addition to what you're saying is it takes courage to move from being a teacher, the one who knows or the one who's holding space, to being the student. It's, you kind of hinted at it. It's a little bit of uh, letting go of control, letting go of the identity of the one who knows, and I really think not everybody knows how to do both. Many people know how to do one or the other, but doing both is really an art too. Well, thank you. I never thought of it that way, Sharon. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Now, I want to go back to this 
what you were talking about in, in 1982 with the AIDS, I'm also struck by, I remember that and it was scary. We had no idea who gets it, how you get it, where you get it. I remember funny thing, you know, today we look at it and say it's funny, but I remember the things we stopped doing as a result. And to think that you went in and worked with that community just fills my heart. You know, it was your spiritual self knows things that your thinking mind doesn't know. And what happened for me was that I knew I was safe. And this was actually very difficult for some of the people that I worked with at the hospital. Several of them came into my office one day. It was kind of like a little informal intervention and said, hey, what's with you? Do you have a death wish? We don't know how this illness is transmitted. What if it's transmitted through the air? And here you're seeing people with AIDS. And because we didn't know the route of transmission, the hospital said, you, you can't run a group of AIDS patients in the same room where we're having other patients. It's simply, it's not safe. So I began to run groups for AIDS patients actually in the apartment of one of my patients who was himself a young physician, unfortunately. And he was one of the long survivors. He lived for two years. That was being a long survivor. And we ran lots of groups in his apartment. And I simply knew that I was safe. That was it. I'm grateful that the hospital continued to allow me to do that. And then, of course, there were many patients who were hospitalized and then I could go into their rooms and visit, and we were we were all covered <laughs> with PPE. Believe me, we were we were carefully protected in the hospital setting, but not in the individual setting. And I always felt that I was safe. Well, I'll tell you, as a member of the LGBTQ community myself, I'm so grateful that there were people like you who knew. I am called to heal, and I know I'm safe, so I am going to lean in instead of leave this community by themselves. Yeah, you know, that's, that's what I did. And, you know, remember one of the physicians at the hospital where I worked said, why do you do this? And I had had a picture taken. It was actually the cover of Spirituality and Health magazine. And I was standing behind a young man with AIDS, and my hands were on his shoulders. And the physician said, is that safe? Is that a good message to send? Why did you do that? And I said, it's simply the compassionate thing to do. And I wasn't afraid, and I wanted people to know. I think it, at that point, we may have just found the, the HIV virus. said, I want people to know that someone with AIDS, they need to be touched. People are afraid of touching them. These were difficult conversations where people were like, like questioning my sanity. 
It really breaks my heart on on so many levels, but um, to think that so many in that time were left by themselves. I know you're not the only one, but I have you in my presence. And to think that you were led by your spiritual self and your innate knowledge that these are human beings who need love and compassion, especially in these scary moments that they were enduring. And then being somebody who's influential, you went ahead and showed that that's what you believe. That's oh, that's uh, profound. Well, thank you so much. Those were such times. And I remember it was actually the second patient that I was able to care for with AIDS who looked at me and he said, 17 people that I know have died in the last four months. You know, it was like a war zone. It was unthinkable, just the the incredible post-traumatic stress that set in right away every time a friend would have a symptom, every time you would see somebody and wonder if it was the last time that you would ever see them. There's one thing, Sharon, about terrible times like that, and that is people drop the bullshit. They drop their masks and they show up authentically as who they are. And so the moments of meeting people, spiritual self to spiritual self, that's what sustained me. It was so real and so present, you know, no time for nonsense. And talk about a juxtaposition of here you are with these people who drop the mask are truly in their spiritual self, which brings out your spiritual self. Then go to your office and here are people who are still in their fear space and their intellects. And what a, whew, what a palpable difference, I imagine. It was a huge difference. And I, I understood them. I understood their fear. So <laughs> it was... You know, sometimes you're just called upon to be curious, be spacious, and do your best to be able to hold multiple points of view. I wonder if you said at that point you had already been meditating for so long. Do you think that was what helped you have such a clear connection to the spiritual, your spiritual self and knowing that you were safe? I think so. I've had mystical experiences all my life. I felt that healing was my calling. And I think because of that, I've always, no matter, even if I'm in the worst mood, if I'm in my most contracted self, if I get into a situation where there's a need, something automatically shifts in me. And it's like, Whatever the mood is goes away, and I'm able to get straight into my spiritual self and get some guidance as to what needs to happen next. I think that comes along with the calling. <laughs> when you're called, something happens so that the path opens for you, and something emerges when it's needed. So that, that was always there. So I was supported. There's such a sense of support from a larger intelligence that you do connect to when you're in your spiritual self. I mean, I look back and I think, how could I have done this? 
because I was running at the same time a clinic for people with cancer, a clinic for people with any kind of stress-related illness. I was doing research. I had an hour commute from the hospital to my home in either direction, and I was raising two sons, and <laughs> it was it was a lot. And also, when one of my AIDS patients was dying, I did my best if they asked me to be there to show up and do the deathbed vigil with them. So that meant oftentimes that I was at the hospital really late into the night, keeping the vigil and doing what people needed. And oftentimes, it's sad what happened in the AIDS epidemic. It was all men in the beginning. And, you know, then through blood transfusions, it began to spread out through men who were bisexual, but it took a while to have women patients as well. In the beginning, it was all men. And it was just, I don't know, I, I, I think about the tenderness of those times. I think of what happened. A lot of the men had actually not come out to their families, or if they had come out, they were not accepted. I mean, we're talking about a long time ago now, you know, in the early 1980s. My God, we're talking about 40 years ago. And what would often happen is that their family, their parents, so well-meaning, would arrive on the scene. They'd want to be with their sons, and they would push away the support community, the gay friends and other friends, and it was often very difficult. So that was an added impetus for me to be able to be there and try to make a loving aura that somehow or other made this very difficult time on many fronts a little bit easier. I don't often go back to that phase, but this reminds me of all of it. And I, I wasn't yet at a place where I was a professional at that point, but just to think of the few that were called and the gift that they gave these men, like you, is, is really something. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's amazing to look back on that and to be so very thankful that there are now treatments so that people can live full and healthy lives, even if they have the virus. It, that's, it's miraculous to me. Modern medicine has some great stuff. It's got its difficult side too, but boy, that that's an amazing thing to think about. So grateful for that. And I do get what you're saying about it being a calling because given the circumstance of raising the kids and having the, the three or four jobs that you held, and clearly it's something beyond you because if you are looking at it just from a logical standpoint, you, you don't have time, you're raising kids, there's all these reasons why not to. So the, the, the visual I get is just you are led, like your heart is just leading you to something that is a calling. That's right. And when you have a calling, you're not pulling on your adrenals for energy. It's not like you get totally exhausted 
and you're having to kick your own butt, there's a source of energy that flows through you. And then you have to be careful because it's it's easy to get depleted and not even realize it because this flow of energy is happening. So it's, you know, you get a lot of help from a larger source. Wow. And this feels like this is just but one expression of uh, your calling and your work as a healer and teacher. Can you take us back to when you knew, oh, I'm, I'm here to be a teacher? There are so many moments of that. But I had a, a very serious mental illness as a 10-year-old. It was a really serious case of obsessive-compulsive disorder. I was hallucinating headhunters that I thought they were going to kill my family with poison darts, and I could see them, but they hadn't quite taken shape in the living room. And in order to prevent that from happening, I had all these rituals, hand-washing, some of the common rituals, other ones I don't want to get into because we don't have time. (laughs) And I was in a hell state for about six months, recovered by really recalling an experience of my spiritual self, which was that I'd been for a couple of summers at a Jewish girls' camp, and I was sitting in my room in a thinking, how can I continue to live when I'm living in fear 24 hours a day? I dream it, I live it. If I don't do the rituals, I'd be crazy. (laughs) I was already crazy. I would die from the terror. And so I thought, when's the last time I was peaceful? I tried to take refuge there, and it brought me back to the pine grove at the camp and the Sabbath services, and, you know, the the memory of just the smell of the earth, the sound of the water on the lake lapping, the warmth of the breeze, the sound of the ancient Hebrew prayers, the sounds of all the little girl voices as we sang, and that sense Suddenly, I got out of my fear state for a bit into that state of the spiritual self where I felt held by something larger. And because of that experience, I was able to stop doing the rituals cold turkey in that spiritual state. A little, you know, a little 10 year old poem about light came to my mind. And I had that to calm me down when I was frightened. And so as I recovered from that illness, I started to ask questions that grew as I grew. But my first question, it was fifth grade, we were actually studying the brain in in our science course. And I thought, what could happen to the human brain that it filters reality in such a different way. How could that be? And it wasn't too many years after that where I found Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception, and I became very interested in the nature of mind and the nature of emotions. 
you know, we've only started to recognize the brain science, oh, in the last 10 or 15 years or so, what goes on when we have a spiritual experience to our brain. And it's so important, it turns out, to be able to go back to spiritual experience. And for people who took the quadrinity process, one spiritual experience I do still go back to was the closure at the end. And I mean, that was the most amazing sense of integration and just being in my spiritual self along with everybody else. The presence of other people multiplies it. And it turns out there's a Um, some wonderful research done by Lisa Miller, who's a psychologist at Columbia University, that when you rerun a spiritual experience like that, for me being at camp or whatever, we all have them, but boy, (laughs) the quadrinity process gives you a heck, heck of a bunch of spiritual experiences that you can rerun. And When that happens, you strengthen the neural networks of your spiritual self, the neural networks of presence. You power down the part of the brain, the default mode network, that reruns old stories and mistakes them for reality so that every time you have a trauma, it grafts onto old traumas. But it takes you out of that rerunning spiritual experience. And so that's that's something I think we can all do. And anybody who takes the process will have plenty of spiritual experiences <laughs> to rerun during the rest of their lives. And you keep building that sense of integration. You keep on getting, I believe, more spacious, more present, more allowing, more in a line with that larger source. And you mentioned rerun. And if I heard you correctly, you on your own were able to, as a 10-year-old, as a fifth grader, rerun to shoot. You kind of pieced it together. Nobody told you rerun a spiritual experience. You just intuitively did it on your own as a 10-year-old. Wow. And through that, you were able to basically heal yourself. Exactly. And that's where my calling came from, because I think a lot of kids who are sick have this natural tendency to say, when I grow up, I want to help people who have been troubled in whatever way I was because you understand you have an empathy for other people who have suffered in your particular way. You know, it is a sense of like common humanity. And so I thought, this is fascinating, and I'm going to grow up to help other people. You know, I thought, what do you know as a 10-year-old? I didn't know the difference between a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I knew my parents had taken me to a couple of psychiatrists. None of what they did helped, but I thought, I could be helpful. I should be one of those. (laughs) Wow. I'm having a hard time 
wrapping my head around a 10-year-old who knew to do this. I, I go back to what you said earlier, where there was a source from beyond us. And I'm curious if you, in all your uh, working on as a healer, as a teacher, have you been able to see anybody else be able to uh, rerun on their own and heal themselves like that? Well, you know, you never know. Healing, it's one of these multidimensional processes, and so many things go into it. But yes, I mean, what kept me going for the 10 years that I ran a mind-body clinic right in the middle of the AIDS epidemic there is stories of transformation. People like click into some part of themselves, and they're able to like marshal a good health care team if it's a physical illness, or they have transformative experiences. They see themselves differently. They're able to maybe have an emotional breakthrough. There are so many ways. I think every person, and I do, by the way, want to be very clear that after years in mind-body medicine, I want to tell people, you cannot always cure yourself. We're all going to die of something. But you can heal yourself. And to be able to leave this lifetime healed, whenever that may be, is what we want. And I think healing is something that keeps continuing. Life has a lot of challenges, and they're all grist for the mill, where little by little you say, okay, this is a difficult experience. I'm having my, you know, my difficult emotional time with it. But to be able to back up from that a little bit, find a little space, use whatever tools you have, do your best to make choices, to become present. For me, and everybody has a different belief system, but for me, and my way of making meaning, everything in this lifetime, including every challenge, is there to help us grow our soul to become more compassionate and more loving. And that's what healing is. It's a long process. And of course, as somebody who I try to, you know, hold the space for healing, I'm not the healer. It's just whatever is needed from what I have to give can come through me, whether it's something scientific, whether it's something spiritual, or whether it's just the sense of being able to connect with someone in a very real way that allows them to connect better with themselves. So where where do you see yourself today? We're in 2023. I know that's hard to believe. You've had such a full and profound and impactful I don't even want to say career because this is so far beyond career. Career has been an aspect of it, but you have heard the calling over and over again and continue to put it into practice and bring into our three-dimensional life and plane. But where are you today? How do you keep that part of you going these days? Well, you know, it's very interesting. As you say, the calling comes over and over for all of us, and we show up in a variety of different ways. You know, when my father died, when I was a research scientist, I was a cancer cell biologist in my late 20s, 
and that was an impetus like okay it's fine to want to heal people of cancer by understanding all the molecular parts of it but there was no one to really support my father in what I didn't even know what way but in one way he had terrible side effects from a medicine he was on it created a manic psychosis it was like a stranger had moved into his skin there was like nobody to help him and that's when i left the laboratory because my father ultimately committed suicide he jumped out of a window and i thought i'm not going to stay in the lab if i can help even one family have a better outcome than ours it will be worthwhile so that was a change now the pandemic created a tremendous change for a couple of years we were <laughs> essentially locked in our homes because prior to that i had been traveling you know i was a traveling teacher no i taught in hospitals i taught in every kind of venue i taught in retreat centers and that was a wonderful period of my life but now what happened during the pandemic was i thought oh you can teach online <laughs> so i very much enjoyed teaching online but i'm also in the period of my life now where back in ancient india it was time to go into the forest and integrate the experiences of your own life in preparation for death now you know my husband and i are both in our late 70s and we need time to integrate our own lives you know i teach memoir writing and i've written 17 books and i've told a lot of stories from my life but i want to tell something i want to write just a little memoir only for my children and grandchildren so they will have something and we just want to be present and have fun as much as possible so i was so glad when you asked me to do this podcast that it wasn't a zoom podcast cuz that let me work in the garden all afternoon and show up in my grubbies <laughs> to do this because for me nature is and i think for so many people this is true nature is one of those things that allows me to put down thinking and just really feel and see and work with the beauty it's so beautiful <laughs> spring right now and i live in santa fe and we've had several days of rain and there is nothing more wonderful than to feel the plants absorb the rain and to feel the life force rising and to see the beauty so that's my primary job right now is to integrate my life and be present to my husband and family and the garden so i love to teach and that's wonderful too it's great that i can i can do both and find just the right balance for this time Well, it seems to me that you have devoted so much of your life for others, 
uh, starting in the 80s and probably before then and all the way to now. And and it seems like maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe this is one of the first times that you're prioritizing you and your time to integrate. And I'm going to write a memoir just for my children. And, you know, suddenly it's like your realm of impact, you're allowing it to get smaller and smaller. Oh, absolutely. That it's so important. And the other thing is, in terms of the quadrinity, my physical self, as you get older, you really have got to listen to what what your physical self has to say. Because if you don't, it bites you in the butt. So it's very clear. Its feedback is very clear. And I spend a lot of time on maintenance. If I don't stretch or exercise or spend time being quiet and spend time making food that's really good to eat and be with friends, all of these physical needs, I won't last long. So I want to last long and I pay attention to my needs. (laughs) Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Well, Joan, I thank you for every minute that you gave us on this interview and your humbleness and vulnerability and beautiful, impactful, profound, and important contribution to um, our world. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for receiving me with your whole heart, Sharon. I could feel that. It was wonderful. Thank you. I feel very nurtured and very grateful. And I feel very inspired. (laughs) Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love in themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.